As we begin this morning, I'm wondering how many of you would be tempted to read somebody else's mail? I know it's maybe not a question that you want to answer honestly in a crowd of people. Uh, I know at home, one of my pet peeves, and I know a letter versus a email is a little bit different, which brings us a little closer to 2021. Uh, one of my pet peeves is when I can hear my phone going off and it's not near me, knowing that I'm going to have to race my son Jack to my phone to see what's actually on it. And I often say to Jack, Jack, if it was for you, it would have been addressed to you. But if I'm being honest, if I was to walk into a room and there was a letter sitting on a table and no one was watching me, I might be tempted to pick up that letter and to take a look at it. I mean, sometimes letters can be really juicy, like there's lots of information. You learn lots about the the writer and the recipient and information about the situations that are being explained and context and and details. Some letters can be really personal and warm and uh, other letters can be really dry and boring and just a bunch of information, but you don't know that until you pick up the letter and start to skim it over. So I don't know how many of you would be willing to, to be honest and say that you probably would take a look at that letter yourself. I remember as a kid uh, probably being influenced by Little House on the Prairie, uh, where I saw Ecclesia, if you remember Little House on the Prairie, uh, when she worked in the mail room uh, where she would steam the envelopes open. And uh, I got a letter that was for my parents from school uh, and I went home and I steamed the envelope open, but I tell you, it's pretty evident that it's been tampered with by the time you get the envelope open. And maybe you're here this morning, you go, I never would read somebody else's mail. If it wasn't addressed to me, I'm not going to take a look at it. But have you ever considered the fact that when you're reading the Bible, you're doing just that? Despite the fact that you say, I would never read anybody else's mail. When you read the Bible, you're reading somebody else's mail because every book in the Bible was originally addressed to somebody else. And that's never more apparent than when we consider Paul's letter to the Philippians. You know, it's easy to forget when you read Paul's writings in the New Testament that it's anything more than a theological dissertation. But the reality is, underlying the theology and the doctrine and the application and the, uh, the exhortations, Paul's writing a letter. And sometimes it's easy to forget that that's what Paul is doing. Most people consider Paul's letter to the Philippians to be his most personal and tender letter. It's filled with joy, it's filled with delight, and and Paul pours out his heart in in a most unguarded and and, and vulnerable way. And so as we have been considering Paul's letter to the Philippians, and as we have mined that letter for all that it has, underlying that letter was Paul's initial purpose of simply writing a letter of thanks to the Philippians to express his gratitude for their gift to him while he was in prison. But you know, it's one thing to say it's, it's, it was just a simple letter of thanks. 
because we have learned so much so far from this letter. I mean, Paul's letter to the Philippians up to where we are today has given us so much to think about. But then we come to today's text that Zach has read for us. And if you've got your Bible, uh, I encourage you to open it up. If you're using your, your phone or your iPad, uh, open it up to Philippians 2. Uh, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 30, which is what Zach read for us. And I don't know about you, but as Zach read it, it reminded me of how I felt when I first started studying these verses. As we've been following Paul's letter from chapter 1, verse 1, until we get to today's text, it almost seems like today, Paul's taking a break. He's kind of set aside what he's been talking about, and now he just wants to simply share with his readers his and his ministry companions' travel plans, that Epaphroditus is going to be returning to Philippi with this letter, this expression of thanks, uh, the letter that we know as Philippians. Uh, Epaphroditus is heading back to Philippi from Rome, uh, and that Paul, once he knows the outcome of his trial, is going to send Timothy to Philippi. And then Paul's hope is that as soon as he can, he'll go to Philippi as well. Not real meaty stuff. Maybe it's just Paul's travel plans. And so we're kind of confronted with the question, what do we do with today's passage? It's kind of like reading somebody else's mail and getting to a section that's really kind of boring. And so we kind of just skim right by it so that we can get to the meaty stuff. And there is a temptation to view these verses in today's text as rather mundane. And so some people have been tempted to look at chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, and to just gloss over them because it seems rather mundane, rather trivial. And yet this is the stuff that letters are made of. Some people, though, are, are tempted to draw way too much out of the verses for today. And so again, we're confronted with this question, what do we make out of today's passage. And if you look at how many people have preached this text, uh, in fact, if you were to look at different preachers as they have covered the letter of Philippians, there are those that simply gloss over these verses. Uh, there are those who actually skip these verses. But then there are those, and perhaps the most common way that people have preached this passage is to consider these travel plans and to use it to show the qualities and characteristics of what makes a friend a good friend. Others have taken this passage uh, and they take from it uh, to show what are the qualities and characteristics that make a servant an effective servant. And others have used these same verses and along the same lines of servanthood have used it to show how Paul is, is expressing what the qualities and characteristics that the principles are for effective ministry. 
And so what's the correct way to handle this text? Are those ways that I've just suggested, at least those last three, not just glossing it over, but uh, is it more than just Paul sharing his travel plans? And are we to see in it what it means to be a good friend, an effective servant, uh, to have an effective ministry? And I think all three of those are good ways to approach the text. I don't think there's anything wrong if a preacher preached on that specific way of handling this text. But, but for this morning, I want us to go one level deeper. You see, Paul's chief concern, his chief concern really in life, in every facet of life, was the gospel and, and the spread of the gospel. His chief concern ultimately for the Philippians was the progress of the gospel in Philippi. I mean, the ultimate reason that he's sending Timothy back to Philippi was, yes, to be an encouragement to them. Yes, to report back to them Paul's affairs and how the trial will, will end up uh, happening. But ultimately, Paul sends Timothy to Philippi so that Timothy would cheer Paul by reporting back to him how the Philippians are doing in relation to the things that we've been looking at for the last number of weeks. How the gospel is progressing in Philippi. How the Philippian Christians have responded to the letter that Epaphroditus is bringing back with him. That's Paul's ultimate concern. And one of the things that Paul's been writing about, well, I've repeated these things over and over the last number of weeks, and I'm going to repeat them again. Do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 27? Paul says, there's just one thing I want to make sure you've got clear. Regardless of what happens to me, whether I, I'm in prison or out of prison, whether I live, whether I die, one thing I want you to have clear. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we remember what that means, right? To the Philippians, you're situated in Philippi, but live as citizens of heaven. And by extension to us, you're situated in the greater Peterborough area, but live as citizens of heaven and conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the weight of how we live out our Christian life should be of equal balance to the weight of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because in Paul's theology, a true saving personal encounter with Jesus Christ must change the way that you live your life. And those who don't yet know Jesus are looking and watching us as Christians and the way that we conduct ourselves. And they're drawing conclusions about Christianity, about Jesus, about the hope that we say that we have by observing the way that we live our life. And we can have a tremendous impact on those who are watching us by the way we live our life, by the way we respond to suffering and, and, and circumstances, by the way we treat each other. And so then Paul exhorts the Philippian believers as a community of faith 
to unity and to harmony, to, to look out for the, self, the, the interests of others, to, to consider others more valuable than themselves. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And Paul knows that this is, is a real high calling. And so he says, look at Jesus. He's the multi- ultimate example of what it means to live this way. And he says to the Philippians, and he says to us today, imitate the mindset of Christ who wasn't selfish, he did, who didn't grab for things. He didn't even hold on to things that were rightfully his, but rather says he emptied himself. That he humbled himself. He was willing to become a servant. He humbled himself and died on a cross for those he loved. And Paul says that's the example. That is what it means to love others sacrificially. That's what it means to look out for the interests and the needs of others over yourselves. Imitate the mindset of Jesus. And then the last uh, verses that we looked at, the last two uh, sermons we did on verses 12 through 18, Paul applies this to the Philippian situations. And he says, you've been saved to be shining stars. You have been saved to shine up the night, shine up the, or light up the night in a dark and perverse world. And you do that by working out your salvation, working out what God has worked in, working out the implications of your salvation, what God has already worked uh, inside of us. And so we work out what God has worked in. And if we do that, then it'll be evident to all who are observing our life that we are who we say we are. We're children of God. And we are that shiny, bright light in a dark world. Shining a light over and against the darkness, but as well, shining a light that, that, that leads those who are living in darkness, out of the darkness and into light. And so that's, that's the life that Paul has been calling the Philippians to live. And I believe what we have here as Paul reveals his travel plans is that Paul holds up the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus as further models of what it looks like to live life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ that Timothy and Epaphroditus show us, they model for us what it looks like to imitate the mindset of Christ. They show us what it looks like to work out one's own salvation. They look, they, they show us what it looks like. They model for us what it means to be shining stars in a dark world. And so as we look at Paul's travel plans He's going to hold out Timothy and Epaphroditus as models. And he's going to show us some qualities and characteristics that Timothy and Epaphroditus have that that, that we can have as well. 
And so what are those qualities? What are those characteristics that these two men model for us? Well, we're going to look at three of them this morning, and we're going to look at that in a second. But first, let me just give you a quick bio on Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, I'm sure most of us have heard of Timothy. Uh, As a young man, Paul helped lead him to Christ, and, and Timothy worked alongside Paul, uh, who is dedicated to be a uh, a committed servant uh, for Christ alongside Paul. Uh, Timothy served with Paul in in Ephesus and Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi and other places, and he's with them uh, while Paul is in prison uh, in Rome. Paul, sorry, Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. Uh, Paul says, he was the man. I can think of no finer man than Timothy. And, and Timothy was Paul's right-hand man, and, and, and he carried on the work of Paul after Paul was gone. And, and in our text today, Paul describes Timothy in, in glowing terms. He says, I have no one else like him. He's like my soulmate, who will show genuine concern for your welfare Timothy was the real deal. What you saw is what you got with Timothy. You know that Timothy has proved himself. Timothy had a track record. And it was a proven track record. And he was a son, as a son to Paul. And he served with Paul in the work of the gospel. Timothy made a choice in his life, and that was to set aside his own personal agenda, perhaps his own personal desires for his life, and instead he chose to serve alongside Paul for the sake of Christ and Christ's gospel. Paul's, sorry, Timothy's goal in life wasn't to be famous, it was to be faithful. And Paul holds Timothy up as a model of what all these things that we've been looking at over these last number of weeks look like in real life when the rubber hits the road. And then he tells us about Epaphroditus. And we don't know anywhere near as much about Epaphroditus as we do Timothy. In fact, we only read of Epaphroditus in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, It's assumed that he was a leader in the church at Philippi, and Epaphroditus had volunteered or had been chosen uh, and said, yes, I'll go to take financial aid and come and assist Paul during his time in prison in Rome. Uh, And either along the way to Rome or while in Rome, Epaphroditus grew uh, critically ill to the point that he almost died. And there were no phones. You couldn't WhatsApp between Rome and Philippi. And so word got back to Philippi that Epaphroditus was gravely ill and could possibly die. And the Philippians were greatly concerned. And Epaphroditus knew this and was deeply distressed that his friends in Philippi, his brothers and sisters, were deeply distressed and didn't know how he was doing. And Epaphroditus uh, Paul felt it was best just to send Epaphroditus back so he could relieve uh, his family, his brothers and sisters in the Lord uh, in Philippi. 
And so he gets sent back with the letter to uh, Philippi. And Paul uses a few terms to describe Epaphroditus uh, in our passage. He says, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, united in the Lord, co-worker, uh, they were on the same team, equals, doing kingdom work, and my fellow soldier. Uh, Paul and Epaphroditus realized that they were in a spiritual battle, and they were sold-out warriors uh, for the cause of the kingdom. And so Paul holds up Epaphroditus as a model to us as well for what it looks like to live out uh, in, in real circumstances, all these different things that we've looked at in the last number of weeks. And so what's the first quality? What's the first characteristic that, that we see modeled in these men? And, and the first quality is this, that, is that they lived for others and not for themselves. You know, if, I think, if there's, you were to ask Paul, who is that person that you think most closely imitates the mindset of Christ, who does nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, who's not looking to their own interests, but to the interests of others, I truly believe he would have said Timothy. He says to the Philippians, I'm sending Timothy to you, and be confident of this. He's the real deal. He genuinely is more concerned about you than he's concerned about himself. He's not coming to pad his pockets. He's not coming to to put another notch in his belt, to pad his resume. He's not coming to take advantage of you. And we all hear nightmare stories of people who have come into spiritual settings as a leader and have all the wrong motivations. That wasn't Timothy. Timothy cared about others more than he cared about himself. And the Philippians could be confident of that. He was genuine. He was the real deal. But you know, Timothy had his own model, his own mentor that he followed in this regard. And that was Paul. You know, I talked about glossing over verses or skipping verses altogether. If you have been really following closely, you'll realize that we took two weeks to go through verses 12 through 18, but I never talked about the last half of verse 16 or 17 or 18 because I wanted to hold on to it till today because I wanted to show you how Paul models for us and how Paul modeled for Timothy and for Paphroditus this same quality of living for others and not yourselves. And turn uh, back a few verses to the the second part of verse 16 of chapter 2. And Paul says something that might be a little bit confusing uh, at, at, at first glance. He says, Then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's got a dream. He has a personal future dream, where he envisions standing before Jesus, giving account of his ministry, and boasting. And you may say, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like something that we should imitate. 
But here's the difference. Paul envisions a day where he'll stand before Jesus giving an account for his ministry and he will boast about the Philippians and how the gospel progressed in Philippi. And he will boast to Jesus about the impact that the Philippian Christians had on their world. You see, Paul cared about others more than he did himself. He rejoiced in the success and in the ministry of the Philippians. And he goes on to say, just as wine is, is poured over an Old Testament sacrifice and the heat of the fire evaporates it into fumes that are a sweet aroma to the Lord, Paul says, even if it means me giving up my life, it doesn't matter as long as you're living for the sake of Christ. You want to know what it looks like to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you want to know what it looks like to imitate the mindset of Christ. If you want to know what it means to be a good friend, an effective servant, to be involved in effective ministry. You look out for others and not for yourself. That's the first quality that the two of these gentlemen and Paul Uh, modeled for us. And then secondly, they chose to be present and involved. Sometimes it's easy to forget when we're reading this passage that Timothy and Epaphroditus are with Paul. It's easy to forget Paul's in prison. Like he's not, he hasn't invited these two gentlemen to visit him and spend some time with them at a spa. They're they're not at some summer retreat overlooking a beautiful lake. Paul's in prison. There's a chance, remote as it was, there's, there's a chance that Paul can be put to death. There's a very good chance that those who are closely associated with Paul are putting their life at risk. That's probably why Paul could rhyme off lists and lists of names of people who are his friends. But I tell you, when Paul got himself in a pickle, which was, was often, a lot of those friends chose not to be near him. But not Timothy and Epaphroditus. They chose to be present and involved with Paul. Regardless of the cost, they weren't going to leave Paul's side. Jackie Robinson, for those of you who follow baseball, was the first African-American player uh, in Major League Baseball. And while he was breaking baseball's color barrier, he faced all sorts of racial persecution. Fans from his home field in Brooklyn to fans from opposing uh, ballparks yelled horrible racial slurs at Jackie Robinson during his first year, going into his second year. And on one particular day, and I believe it was in Cincinnati, the fans are letting Jackie Robinson have it in a horrible, horrible way. And Robinson stands looking humiliated. And Hall of Famer shortstop Pee Wee Reese walks from shortstop to second base where Robinson was standing and puts his arm around Jackie Robinson and he stares up to the crowd. And it's reported that the crowd 
went silent. Jackie Robinson says, that arm around my shoulder is what saved my career. I'm sure Pee Wee Reese took flack for what he did that day. But he said, I couldn't let my teammate stand alone and face that kind of persecution. And so he put his arm around Jackie Robinson and was a good friend of Robinson's throughout their entire life. Perhaps God's bringing to mind someone in your situation that you need to put your arm around. Someone who's lonely, someone who's hurting, someone who's facing persecution and ridicule and opposition because of their stand for Christ. Maybe someone who's failed, someone who's fallen and who's trying to get up and yet everyone's pointing their finger at them. And God's calling you to be the one that comes along their side and puts your arm around them. Jimmy Baker, in his book, I Was Wrong, he tells as he was coming to the end of his prison term, and I'm sure most of you know Jim Baker, the TV evangelist that had a horrific fall uh, in his ministry, and a fail in his ministry, and he quite admittedly, and of course his book is called I Was Wrong, tells of as he was coming to the near of his prison term, he, get a, he had a phone call from Franklin Graham. And Franklin Graham said, Jim, my family wants to support you. We want, we want to help pay for the halfway house you're going to be going to. We want to sign for a vehicle for you and uh, some other things, assist you with some finances. And, and uh, Jim Baker says, I said, Franklin, you, you can't do that. To associate yourself with me, you're just asking for a fight. And of those, those of you who know Franklin Graham, his response was, well, tell them to bring it on. And as Baker was released from prison and he went into the halfway house, he got an invitation from the Graham family to come to church with them. And so Baker says that he showed up at the church and the usher brought him up to what seemed like row and row and row of the Graham clan. And they sat him in a spot where there was a couple of empty spots. And he sat down. And a few minutes later, Billy Graham's wife was ushered in and sat right beside him. As if to tell everyone in that congregation and to tell everyone in that world, this is my friend. I'm not going to strand him. We're going to stand side by side, arm around shoulder, and support and aid and love. What's it look like to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, to work out our salvation, to shine like bright stars, What's it mean to be a good friend and an effective servant, to be involved in an effective ministry? It means that we're present. We're willing to be involved and engaged in other people's lives. And then finally, the last uh, the quality that I want to point out that Epaphroditus and Timothy modeled is their willingness to give of themselves. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they gave of themselves. They, they put the kingdom before comfort. You know, for us, it's, it's, it's no problem to, at the drop of a hat, get in our car and drive six, seven, eight hundred miles to a vacation destination. We, we, we kind of miss the reality for Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
Traveling between Philippi and Rome was an 800-mile, numerous week, involving land and water trip that meant sacrificing a whole lot of personal things to make the trip. And yet, Epaphroditus and Timothy were willing to do it. Timothy was willing to go from Rome back to Philippi with the report concerning Paul's affairs. Epaphroditus was willing to be sent back to Philippi. And remember, it pretty well near killed Epaphroditus. Uh, some believe that the way Paul describes Epaphroditus' situation, it, w- it was only through the miraculous supernatural intervention of God that Epaphroditus survived. I mean, they didn't take needles for malaria and all those other things that we would take if we were traveling to a different culture. And Epaphroditus was gravely, gravely ill. But he was ready to go back to Philippi. And we asked, why, why would Timothy be so willing to travel to Philippi? Why would Epaphroditus, who almost died, be willing to travel back to Philippi? Why was he willing to travel to Rome in the first place? And we can ask that question, why, about so many people that we know? Why did the people that we know, who could probably have careers paying them much more money, commit themselves to the ministry of Youth Unlimited and Youth for Christ? Why? Why did Jim Elliott, who we talked about a few weeks ago, do what he did? Why did Corey Tenboom and her family do the things that they did? Why? Well, there can only be one explanation. They did it for Jesus and for the advance and the progress of the gospel and for the sake of Christ's kingdom. One commentator asks this question, how would you respond to this ad? Wanted. Understudy for well-traveled but trouble-prone missionary. Must be able to suffer illness and hardship without complaining. To travel to distant countries and be separated from your loved ones for long periods of time. To teach and be taught. To evangelize, organize, and be flexible when nothing goes right. Must put up with low pay, long hours, high stress levels, and intense opposition. Often attacked, occasionally stoned, beaten weekly, frequently arrested. Interested applicants should contact the Apostle Paul. And he asked the question, any takers? The ad's fictitious. But the position was real, and both Timothy and Epaphroditus willingly volunteered to take on that um, position because they were willing to give themselves. They were willing to put the kingdom and the concerns of the kingdom before their own comfort. And the last thing I want to mention is in verse 30. And Paul raises the bar. He says, Paul, or sorry, he says that Timothy and Epaphroditus model this quality of a willingness to give of oneself. But Epaphroditus goes one step further. He's willing to give of himself with no concern for himself. Look at verse 30. He says, Epaphroditus, he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Paul says Epaphroditus risked his life. The word risk there 
means to put, expose oneself to danger or to gamble. In Paul's day, it was used of those who would come to the defense of a friend and speak on their behalf and yet expose themselves to all sorts of consequences. It was used of fighters that would put themselves in an arena uh, before a dangerous foe, and they would put themselves at risk. A few centuries after Paul, the same Greek word for risk was used by a group of Christians who called themselves, in English, the gamblers. And when sickness, when a pandemic would hit and everyone would flee away, this group of Christians who called themselves the gamblers would risk their life to provide care uh, and resources and love for people afflicted by disease and sickness and who found themselves in great need. If, if you've wondered, and maybe you can't even see it, if maybe those who are watching on Zoom are going, what in the world is Brent wearing? It says, no limit club, and it's got two playing cards on it. Now, to be truthful, this shirt was given to me lovingly by Ken and Ruth Bastard. Uh, at the time, I wasn't aware of really what the source was, but Ruth said she found it at Cavan Mart. And so if you've been from around this area, you know what Cavan Mart is. I think it's kind of associated with the Cavan Dump and where people bring stuff that's not really ready for the dump, but they would put it in a building and people could exchange or take what they want and leave what they want. And they found the shirt and figured, well, it could either be a tent or they could give it to Brent. And so they gave it to Brent. And I've always been waiting for an occasion to be able to wear it to church because I love the saying, no limit club. And today is the day it fits. Because what Paul says about Epaphroditus is he was a gambler. He was willing to risk it all. He put everything on the line for Christ. And I wonder for myself and for you, how much are we willing to risk for the sake of Christ? How willing are we to move outside of our comfort zone for the things of Christ? And the reality is, and it's a sad reality, is I think... In North America, we've created a, a Christian culture of, of comfort. And we weigh every decision. We, we consider the personal cost of everything that we're called to do. And often our comfort wins. Oswald Chambers says, When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Have we constructed a Christian culture that keeps us from risking anything for the sake of, a gospel, of the gospel? What's it look like to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? What's it look like to work out the implications of our salvation? What's it look like to shine like bright stars in a dark world? What's it look like to be a good friend and an effective servant, to be involved in an effective ministry? It involves a willingness to give of ourselves. To put it all on the line for the sake of Christ. And so Paul and Timothy, or sorry, Paul 
and sharing his travel plans presents Timothy and Epaphroditus as models, further models of what it looks like to live in this way that he's been calling the Philippians to. Earlier in chapter 2, as we've talked about, he, he gives Jesus as the ultimate model of these things, the mindset that we should imitate. And very shortly, Brian's going to lead us into communion. And I can't think of anyone who more models what we've talked about this morning than Jesus, who is more concerned about others than himself, who chose to be present and involved and engaged in our life when we didn't deserve it, when we were at enmity with him. He came to this world and put his arm around our shoulders. And he was willing to give of himself. And he put it all on the line by dying on a cross for us. And so I believe you guys are going to lead us in a song. I keep that in mind as we sing the words of these songs and as Brian leads us into communion.